Hey, it didn't make any noise. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Um, we're uh, continuing on in the book of Exodus. Exodus, we're going to finish chapter two. Um, this is going to be the one week where we don't have children's church. So next week we'll have children's church again. So um, the kids are going to stay with us. If they get a little antsy, blame it on me because I went too long. It's my fault. So before we turn to the word, let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful for all that you've given us. And like Paul was saying this morning, we are grateful for the Holy Spirit. Um, Lord, that is a blessing that you have bestowed in the new covenant on your church. And for it, we are so grateful because, Lord, your, your spirit is that down payment, that promise, that um, security, that your covenant promises are true. And so thank you for, for sending him to us. And Lord, Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd be with us now. You inspired the writing of your word. Um, it was written down for us, for, this, uh, for the, the people who the, edge of the end of the ages has come upon. And Lord, we confess that we won't understand it rightly without you. So would you be with us now to help us hear and to see your word, to understand what you're telling us. And um, most importantly, Lord, to love it and to apply it to our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So um, <clears throat> just a reminder, book of Genesis was about God and his people. Genesis said, this is who God is. He's the God of the heavens and the earth. And he said, this is who his people are. This is where they came from. This is why they're in Egypt. Uh, they came in as celebrated guests. And that's where we kind of left it. So we pick up Exodus chapter two, or Exodus, the book of Exodus. And it's that same thing, God and his people. But what we're going to see in the book of Exodus is God redeems us, God rules us, and God dwells with us. That's kind of the theme of, of the book of Exodus, but it still remains that same thing, God and us, God and us, God and us. Um, as we're looking at chapter 2, it feels to me like chapters 1 and 2 were the prologue to the book of Exodus, kind of the setup of the story. And the reason I say that is because all the way through these first two chapters, it's been so frustrating how fast Moses moves and he gives us so little details. He says something and then he moves on and he just, he sails through it. Also because the end of chapter two, God shows up. Um, God has been mentioned in chapter one with, or chapter two with the, uh, the uh, midwives, God blessed them. Uh, but he's been conspicuously in the background in these first two chapters. But the way chapter two ends, it's all about God. So God shows up. So that kind of feels to me like that is the end of the prologue. This is the end of the introduction. And then what comes in chapter three is God really shows up. It's the burning bush. He calls Moses. He is present in the, in the burning bush. So one more week of, gosh, I wish he gave us more details. Because uh, it just goes so quick. So you remember where we were last week, how we ended last week? Moses was three months old in a basket picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. And now uh, when Ma Moses had grown up, we went from three months old. And Stephen in, in, X, or in Acts chapter 7, Stephen says he was 40 when this happened. So we just sailed through 40 years in one word. And, you know, the, in those days when he was a big guy. Wow. <laughs> Why didn't you tell us about that stuff, Moses? Uh, somebody was joking and said, well, you know, in the Ten Commandments, um, they filled that in. <laughs> you know, they had plenty of detail in there. Um, Moses, I think, is moving this fast in the story. He's clocking through this so quick because he wants to get to the story of the Exodus, but he has to set some things up first. And the first thing he has to set up is him because he is the one who's going to lead them through the Exodus. And so what we're going to see today is how he wound up leaving Egypt 
and getting to Midian, and then he's on the cusp. He's set up to, to, uh, to answer God's call to lead his people. Uh, the other thing that we're going to see is um, Moses is going to tell us three episodes and then talk about God. So the three episodes that Moses is going to tell us about are his encounter with injustice and his, his response to it. And then in the end, we'll, we'll get a look at how God responds to injustice, what God does about it. So um, my plan is we might move kind of quick through the three episodes. There's not a whole bunch of detail, a whole bunch of questions going on there. And then dwell a bit on that idea of God, um, God knows. That's how the, the chapter ends, and God knows. And that's tremendously good news. That's really good news for us. So chapter 2, starting in verse 11, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. Um, there's, for some reason, people question whether Moses knew that he was a Hebrew. Yes, of course he knew he was a Hebrew. He was three months old, but then he stayed with his mom for a number of years because the Hebrews would wean children somewhere about three to six years old. So he, he had grown up in a Hebrew home before he was turned over to Pharaoh's daughter. And so when, when he gets to be a certain age, he goes out to look at his people. He goes out to observe what's going on with his people. And it says that he looked on their burdens. Sounds pretty passive, doesn't it? I mean, he could have done that from a balcony window, looked out and said, yep, they're, they're, they're experiencing some burdens. The word there for looked at is more than just observed with his eyes. There's, there's a heart rendering part of it. There's a connection, an emotional connection. The other place that word's used, remember the story of Hagar? Hagar was Sarah's uh, Egyptian um, servant, and she gave Hagar to Abraham and said, have a child with her because I'm not having any babies. And so they do, and Sarah gets really super jealous and says, I can't stand her, send her away. So Abraham sends her out into the wilderness, and she just goes wandering away with her child. And she sets Ishmael under a bush and then goes about a bow shot away and says, I can't look on his death. I can't look on this. And it's that same word. It's not just I cannot observe it. It is, it will break my heart to look at these things. It will really, really break my heart to watch my son die, so I just I can't even look. The same thing is going on here. Moses doesn't just go to observe. He goes to connect with his people, to feel what his people are feeling. He understands that they're in distress, and so he goes to look on that. So that's what he does. He goes out, and he looks on their burdens. And what he sees is an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and Moses repeats, one of his people. Moses is showing us, he's reminding us, he is connected to the Hebrews. Even though he grew up in Pharaoh's house, he is connected to these Hebrews. And so he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Frustrating little detail. I wish he had told me, was that a taskmaster that had been put over the, the Hebrews? Was it just some random Egyptian who walked up and said, gosh, I hate Hebrews, let me beat this one up? No clue. No idea. But something's going on. This Egyptian is beating up a Hebrew. And so Moses is incensed by that. That is wrong. This, this should not be happening. And so how does he respond to this injustice? He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, coast is clear, he struck down the Egyptian. The, the term there for striking down, he, he walloped him. He beat him to death is what he did. So the, the Egyptian is beating the Hebrew, and Moses beats him and kills him. And when he had struck him down, he dragged the body out and hit it in the sand. That is a terrible plan. <laughs> the sand moves, right? The wind blows, the sand moves. That body will not stay hidden for very long. It, it just won't. It, the, the, the dunes are moving too much. But he's not thinking clearly right now. He's incensed. He's angry. 
He's, he's outraged at the injustice of this Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian, and so he, he hides the body. So that was his plan. That was just a, a reaction. He just reacted. Then it says the next day he went out. So he's not done. He didn't go out to just watch one time. He's walking out again to see what's happening with my people. And this time he sees another scuffle. But this time it's between two Hebrews. They're struggling together. And um, he said to the man who was in the wrong, why do you strike your, your companion? So we don't know what the argument was over, do we? Never told us. It could be, uh, you said you were going to marry my daughter and you didn't, or you said you were going to buy my sheep and you didn't, or, you know, who knows what? It, it's not important. But Moses shows up and he sees these two struggling and he asks the man who's in the wrong. So it was clear to Moses for some reason, this is the guy who's wrong. And he says, why do you strike your, your companion? Now, if the guy was in the right and struck him, maybe he'd have a reason to, but if you're wrong and you strike somebody, that's just wrong. So he, he asks him, why are you striking your companion? For Moses, he has probably has, this is my hopefully sanctified imagination, Moses probably has this romantic version in his head of his people. They're this unified body, this, this group that are, that are, you know, since they're isolated in Egypt by themselves, they're, they're a unified group. And why would they ever have disagreements? Boy, is he going to be in for an eye opener when he leads them out into the wilderness, huh? Boy, are things going to change. But I kind of get the feeling he's, he's surprised that there would be any animosity between two Hebrews. Why would you do this? And so it, it, he, he's watching now an injustice between two. One was wrong and one was right. And the one who was wrong is beating up the one who was right. And so the one who is wrong said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And, and Moses is afraid and he thought, surely the thing is known. So go back to the Egyptian. Moses shows up. There's an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Moses looks around. The coast is clear and kills him. Who are the only two people who survived that encounter? Moses and the other Hebrew. So who told everybody about Moses killing an Egyptian? The other Hebrew, the one that he delivered, has been telling stories. This Moses guy, maybe he was telling it in admiration. This Egyptian was beating me to death. And Moses, Prince Moses, you know, the guy that lives with the Pharaoh, he showed up and he killed the guy. Isn't that great? But the man who's in the wrong isn't reading it that way. He sees it as, an, as a, a threat. Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Well, it's funny because he's been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. So who made him a prince over you? Pharaoh did, so shut up. But that's not what he means. He's saying, who gives you authority over me, Moses? Who do you think you are? You're my, you're my prince. You're my judge. Who are you to judge me? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? What happened was Moses, in his fit of anger in killing the Egyptian, has surrendered his moral authority to tell this man, you're wrong for doing that. He, he's, his, his sin is known, and it's pretty grievous. And so now the man feels like he doesn't have to listen to him because who are you? You're going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? Moses has found out. He thought he had done it in secret, but he hasn't. The word has gotten out. Now, what comes next is kind of startling. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. What? Moses has grown up, according to Stephen, 40 years in this man's house. He killed one Egyptian and he's going to kill him? 
in, in Egyptian royalty, and there's some, some documents that, that authenticate this. In Egyptian royalty, they had the right over, they had the authority over life. They could kill anybody they wanted to. There's nothing wrong with that. We have a, a, a vision of humanity that all people are equal. All people are created equal and, and worthy of dignity. The Egyptians didn't have that delusion. There was Pharaoh who was darn near God, maybe even God. There were royalty who gods must love because we're rich. And then there's those others. And those others are not really even worthy of honor and we can kill them. So why does Pharaoh turn to look at his, his adopted son and say, I'm going to kill this guy? Well, don't forget who Pharaoh is. This is the same guy that tried to kill Moses before. He was terrified that the Hebrews were multiplying so quickly. It scared the daylights out of him. And so he was the one who went to the midwives and said, all right, kill all the male babies. And that didn't work. And so he went to his people and he said, if you see a male Hebrew, throw him in the river. So this is a guy who is, first of all, afraid of Hebrews. And he's not afraid of killing all the way down to infants. So when Moses, when word reaches his ears that Moses has killed an Egyptian, his worst fears are confirmed. The Hebrews are rising up. This is the guy that could lead them. This is the man who could start the revolt. It could all happen right here. And it's the Hebrew I brought into my own house. What a huge mistake that was. Should have killed him when I had the chance. I'm going to take care of it now. And so he's going to kill Moses. And it makes perfect sense that he was this afraid of the Hebrews. This might be the problem. So he seeks to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Now, the land of Midian at this time was not a well-defined chunk of real estate. It was probably off in the, the um, uh, Saudi Arabian Peninsula up by the, the tip, by the Sinai Peninsula. I, I should have put a map up, but it, it's kind of a fuzzy area because the Midianites were wanderers. They were, they were nomads. Uh, you remember when Joseph was sold into slavery and taken to Egypt? He was sold into the hands of Midianites. Um, so the Midians were, were not really like city dwellers. They were more nomads, but they had this chunk of real estate. And so Moses flees there. Why Midian? Um, later in Israel's history, Midian is going to be a real pain. They're going to war with them regularly. But right now, Israel's not a nation, are they? They're just a people group in, in Egypt. The reason he headed there is because the Midianites had no love for the Egyptians, and the Egyptians had no love for the Midianites. So you want to get away from this person, you go to their enemy, because their enemy is not going to quickly turn you over. So that was a wise choice is to head into Midian. And it says that he sat down at a well. Kind of just a throwaway sentence, but if they have no major cities, he can't go to the city gate and talk to the elders and say, hey, here's the situation that I'm in, and I'm seeking asylum. Where do you go? Well, everybody's going to wind up at the well at some point. In, in Israel, or in that uh, part of the world, there's not a whole bunch of water, so you go to the well. So that's where he heads, is to the well. So now Moses is out of Egypt. He, he has departed from Egypt. He's explained to us, God's people, why he is not, uh, he didn't rise up from within Egypt to deliver his people, why he came from outside. So that's, that's the first um, two of his encounters with injustice. He, he sees the, the Egyptian beating a Hebrew and a Hebrew beating a Hebrew. And so now he goes to the well and he sits down. So here's what happens at the well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Wait a minute. The priest of Midian. I've always pictured him as a priest of Yahweh um, because Midian is actually a son of Abraham. 
Um, you remember at the end of Abraham's life, he had uh, three other wives after Sarah had died, and he had children from them, and one of them is Midian. So Moses has gone to his distant cousins for sanctuary, and one of them is a priest. Now, is he a priest of Yahweh, a priest of the true and the living God? Not sure. Um, Ishmael didn't do so well with the true and the living God when he departed. Um, who knows what, what Midian is worshiping, what the, this priest of Midian, but he's a priest and he has seven daughters and apparently he has no sons. Um, there's no mention of any sons. The daughters are out tending the flock. Uh, the closest we get is in numbers, I think it is. It mentions Hobab, who was a son-in-law of the priest of Midian. That's, that's as close to a son as he gets. So these seven daughters go out, and they took the flocks out, they're taking care of their, their father's flocks, and they come to the well and they draw the water. And uh, the, the idea is they're gonna draw water, fill the troughs, and let the sheep come and, um, and drink. So when they do that, they get there, the shepherds show up, and they drove them away. So here's, a, here's another injustice. This is an economic injustice. These women have worked to get the water out of the well, it wasn't like you know hand pump uh, to get the water out. You had to pull jars up out of the well to get water out to fill these troughs, and these troughs needed to be filled because there's a lot of sheep. So they have labored to fill these troughs, and the fruit of their labor is denied to them because the other shepherds come and drive them all away and put their their flocks up there. Now, for some reason, I always thought this was just like a regular occurrence, like they'd show up and do that, and I'm like, well, that's kind of dumb. You know, about once, if that happened, I wouldn't show up before the other shepherds. So I think this was a one-off. And it just so happens that Moses just so happens to be there at that just particular time. And he responds. He's like, no, that's not fair. They drew the water. They get the first dibs. When they're done, your sheep can come up and you can draw some water. So he drives off the shepherds. Now, <laughs> shepherds are not pushovers. Um, you remember... Think of King David, right? He's a, he's a shepherd. He's out in the fields. And when Saul says, well, uh, you can't be part of my army because you're not tough, he goes, look, I killed a bear and a lion. So these shepherds are not winklings and pushovers, but somehow Moses is able to intimidate them and drive them away. He must have been an imposing person. He must have just been this figure who showed up. So he drives them away. And, the, and, he, and then he doesn't only just drive them away, he waters their flocks. He does the manual labor for them. You've already worked, ladies. Let me finish this for you. You got ripped off. And so he does that. And it's so funny the way Moses tells it because he waters the flock and then they come home to their father. There's, there's no explanation of what happened. They leave him at the well and come home and go, hey, dad, this guy, he did a good thing for me. And, and dad's like, what? Where is he? How could you leave him at the well? Um, it just is amazing that Moses would do that. And, and you can picture the scene. They go, okay, well, thanks, dude. Bye, Mr. Egyptian. And then they head home. Why would you do that? But for whatever reason, whatever was going on, they get home and they tell dad what happened. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. An Egyptian. Why do you think they supposed that Moses was an Egyptian? Because he was raised in Pharaoh's house, he probably was uh, trimmed up and, and dressed like an Egyptian, uh, maybe even spoke with an Egyptian accent because he spent most of his life like that. He looked like an Egyptian to them. They apparently didn't spend enough time to investigate and say, well, who are you from? Where's your family? That kind of stuff. They call him an Egyptian. And so uh, their father, Raul, says, where is he? And, and Ruel, rather, I'm sorry, where is he? And, and why have you left him? And call him and let's feed him. 
This was common ancient Near East etiquette. When somebody came, an important person came, you fed them. You didn't just, you know, do well and uh, have a nice day. You brought them into your house. So Abraham sees, he doesn't realize it at the time, but he comes to figure it out. God and two angels coming, and he says, let me fix some food for you. And, and let me honor you. Please sit and let me feed you. It, that was just the ancient Near East manner of hospitality. So he says, bring him. Now look how fast he moves at this point. Moses is not even in the tent yet, is he? He's still at the well. The last thing we hear uh, the priest of Midian say is that let's feed him some bread. Call him that we may feed him bread. Um, Moses was content to dwell with them. Uh, he married Zipporah, and he had a son. He again hits the fast forward button and just zoop right through that whole thing. Suddenly he goes from an Egyptian at a well to a son-in-law with a child and just moves through it so quick. The reason, again, is he's pressing through. He's getting us to the Exodus, but he's got to go through these things to set them up, so he's telling us the important part. So he has a son, and he calls his name uh, Geshurim, Geshurim, Gershom, sorry, Gershom. Um, and he says that's because I'm a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, isn't it something? He's a sojourner in a foreign land. He was a sojourner in a foreign land in Egypt, and now he's in Midian, he's a sojourner in a foreign land, because where is his home going to be? He knows his ancestral family's home is Canaan, and he hasn't gone there yet. Uh, or maybe he is thinking of Egypt, but whatever it is, he's, he acknowledges himself as a foreigner here. So that's his third encounter with injustice, right? So three encounters with injustice. First of all, you, it might be racial, because the Egyptians hated the Hebrews. They found them dirty. Um, sheep herders, yuck. Um, so it might be a racial form of, of uh, uh, injustice. It might be economic because they're slaves and we're not. Therefore, we can do with them whatever we want. But whatever it was, it was physical injustice because he's beaten on him. The second one was an injustice between brothers. Your companions, your brothers, you're part of the same family. And then the third one was it could be gender uh, injustice because they're women, but Moses doesn't really draw attention to that, aside from the fact that they are women. Um, it, it sounds more like it's economic. Well, there's more of us than there are you. It might even be religious, because they're the daughters of a priest. And maybe these folks don't particularly like that priest or that religion. But whatever it is, it, it, I think at its heart, it's an economic injustice. They've stolen. They've really actually stolen from these women. They labored. They poured the water. They're not able to enjoy the fruits of their labor. So that's the three forms of injustice. And the way Moses responds has been lumpy, spotty at best. We'll look at that when we want to take a look at this last section. The last piece of this is where God shows up. God is now the forefront. And that will really draw us into the whole thing. So here's what the last portion says. During those many days the king of Egypt died, those many days that, that um, Moses was in Midian, sometime during that period, the king... The king of Egypt died. This would be the king, the pharaoh, who was trying to kill him. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Pretty sure they were doing that before. Um, maybe it is that this pharaoh inflicted worse slavery on him. Maybe he ramped it up a notch, and that's why they cried out for help. Maybe they were crying out all along, and it's just the death of the pharaoh is now this next phase, a marker for the next phase. Um, we're not sure, but the point is Israel groaned and called out. And listen to this, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And this is, again, this is why Genesis was so incredibly important. 
God, Yahweh, is the God of the heavens and the earth. He is not the God of Canaan. He is not oppressed or opposed or uh, alienated by the gods of Egypt. He can hear the cries of his people wherever they are. In Canaan, in Egypt, in Mesopotamia, in America, wherever. Because he's the God of the heavens and the earth. So because his people's cry come out, it comes up to God. God hears. And listen to how he responds. And God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So in the midst of all of this, as Moses has been rushing us to get us uh, to the point where he's about to return and deliver the people of, of Israel, before we get to Moses, it's not Moses, it's God. So he sets us up with this thing. God heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. And that's why we get to chapter 3 with the burning bush. That's what sets that up. So what God does in hearing is he's able to hear wherever his people are. What he does in remembering, it says that he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His covenant, in, in Genesis chapter 15, when God makes his covenant with Abraham, part of that covenant is you will be 400 years in slavery and oppression in a land that is not your own, and at the end of that time, I will redeem you. So for some reason, the covenant promise included 400 years of slavery, but it also included a promise of deliverance. And God remembered that covenant. It's not like God went, oh, wait, where did I leave those Hebrews? Oh, shoot, they're in, in, in uh, Egypt. I better go get them out. What he remembered was not his people. He remembered his covenant, his covenant promise. And it's interesting, he says it's to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remember when we looked at the book of Genesis, when we looked at Isaac and Jacob, we handled them as, a, as one story. The point of that story was, can the covenant successfully be transmitted from Abraham to his children, to Isaac, to Jacob, and on? And so when, when he says here, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what he's telling us at this point is, by the way, that same covenant promise now has been transmitted to the people of Israel, even after 400 years of slavery, even under the oppression of Pharaoh's taskmasters, my covenant promise stands. It has successfully arrived on you, and now is the time. He remembers his covenant with Abraham. Now is the time. So the other part of that covenant with Abraham is the timing was 400 years. Why was it 400 years? What God said in Genesis 15 is because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. When that sin is full, my people Israel will return to this land and they will wipe out the Amorites. They will take the promised land from the Amorites. So why 400 years? Because God is extremely patient. He is not willing that anybody should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He gave them 400 years to repent. Now, I don't like bringing up what was going on in the land because it was horrible. They were sacrificing their children to Moloch in the most abominable way of, of sacrifice. It was horrible what they did. And it happened for 400 years. And God put up with it for 400 years. And then after 400 years, he said, that's it. I'm done. It's full. 
So that's what he's remembering now. He's not like he forgot Israel in, in Egypt, like I forgot uh, um, some uh, um, cookies in the oven or something. What he's remembering is, I made a promise. The time is up, and now it's time for me to do that. God heard, he remembered, and he saw. And Moses doesn't tell us what he saw, but he doesn't have to, does he? he we know what he saw. He saw what was happening to his people. His ears were attentive to their cries. His mind was remembering his covenant, and his eyes saw what was happening to his people. He was, he was aware of what was being inflicted on them. And then this last miraculous statement, and God knew. And God knew. God knew now was the time. God knew that his people were in, in desperation and need. God knew that it was time for, for him to answer, time for him to respond. And so his eyes and his ears now are focused on Israel. It's not that he wasn't aware of them before. It's the divine focus now comes into this. And this is where the, this is going to happen. This is why we get to chapter 3 and God shows up in the burning bush and prepares Moses to go deliver his people. But compare what Moses did with what God did. Moses looked and he saw no one, Right? When he was confronting the Egyptian who was beating the Hebrew, he looked around, he saw nobody. And so he acted. God looked, and it's not that he saw no one. God saw his people and the Egyptians. He saw it all. Moses could see that he was in the clear, that nobody was going to see what he was going to do. God sees it all. He's, he's watching all of it. Moses rashly murdered and lost his moral authority. He, he murdered a man who was not worthy to be murdered. And therefore, when he was trying to confront the others, he, he lost any moral authority. What God does is he doesn't rashly murder. Did he rashly go in and take out the Amorites? No, he patiently waited 400 years for them to repent. He took his time with them. And so he has incredible moral authority to come in and say, no, now is the time. It's done. We're finished here. So then when Moses hits the two Hebrews fighting, he backs down, right? He backs off. So where with the Egyptian, he didn't give the Egyptian any time to repent. He saw, he looked around, made sure nobody was there, and he killed him. The Egyptian had no time to repent. With the, man, the Hebrew who was in the wrong, he didn't give him even the opportunity to repent. He never asked him to repent. As soon as he confronted the man and the man uh, threatened him, he took off. He fled. Well, God has maintained his measured and his appropriate response in the face of Pharaoh's opposition. This is just the beginning of it. The beginning of his looking at Pharaoh's opposition and saying, I'm going to act. It will come to 12 plagues culminating in the Passover where God will continue in the face of someone who says, you have no right to tell me what to do to assert his right to tell him exactly what to do. So Moses' wrath, his, his opposition to injustice was lumpy and uneven. It, it just didn't happen really well, right? The third one, he did. He got it, didn't he? He didn't kill anybody. Yay! He didn't back down. He chased off these unrighteous shepherds who were trying to steal the water. So in one, he overacts. In the other, he underacts. And then in the third one, he acts appropriately. It took him a while to get there. He finally made it. God's wrath is perfect and just and even and always on time and always exactly right. So you get this contrast between the two. Now, Moses wrote the story because he had to set up his departure from Egypt and his arrival in Midian. That's the point of that, for sure. But I think there's this other part of that story that the, the end of uh, 
chapter 2 brings into that. It brings in that discussion of how do we handle these things? How is God righteous if he's letting his people be beaten and killed in Egypt? How, how can he, why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he, he answer now? Why wait 400 years? Um, it's a question that people ask even now. Why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much horrible stuff in the world? Why doesn't God do something about it? And, and part of the answer is, well, he is doing something about it. But the something he's doing is not on our timetable. Because think about this, right? Moses has just departed and he's gone into Midian. According to the New Testament, he will be in Midian 40 years. So 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in, in Midian. Then he's going to come back and start the Exodus. He's going to start working through the Exodus. So God sees, he knows, he understands, he remembers his covenant, and then he waits 40 years to deal with it. Why? Number Who, who knows? There's, there's more reasons with God than we can possibly imagine, but the, some of them, the ones that stand out now are the sin of the Amorites and the sin of Moses. Moses is not yet ready to lead these people, is he? His response to injustice, his response to struggle and strife is hot-headed and uneven. He, he's been steeped in Egyptian culture. He gets that because he's going to have to understand it because that's what he's going to go confront. But he doesn't quite yet understand how to lead these people. And so what we're going to see next is God puts him in his training camp, one of God's favorite training camps for leaders in the Bible. Go shepherd a flock. Go be a shepherd for 40 years. When you're ready, I'll call you. So God is patient with the Amorites. He's working towards a goal there. He is aware of the suffering of his people. He will deal with the suffering of his people. But he doesn't necessarily do it on our timeline. It's going to take a bit. So when it comes to the new covenant, why doesn't God... Why didn't God send Jesus immediately after the fall? Why have all these millennia of suffering and sin and destruction and decay? Why not send Moses or Jesus right away? Why not just deal with the sin as soon as it happens? I don't know. I vote for that. <laughs> if, if we get a vote, I vote for that one. Then we can maybe go back in time and avoid all of this. But what the Bible tells us in Galatians 4, it says, When in the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time, when the time was appropriate, when it was right, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the time was full, when the time was right, God acted. Now, we're in the middle of it, and we're going, I, I don't understand, Lord, why you didn't do it as soon as Moses fell, uh, why was 33 AD the right time to redeem us? Why not 700 BC or 1200 AD or, you know, like any time? Why then? We don't know. We're in the middle of it. We can't make that call. If we saw what God saw, because God saw, didn't he? And if we knew what God knew, we would agree with God. And we go, yeah, you know what? That's the perfect time, Lord. 40 more years is exactly the right amount of time. When, when should you send your son? Lord, I, I, now I see with your eyes, I understand with your mind, 3380, bam, that was exactly the right time. Perfect. But we don't have all of that. We don't have all of those details. We don't have all of those little things to put together and to try to figure out. We just have one thing. At this point in the Bible, at this, this, this thing here, or this story here, we have one thing. God sees, God hears, God remembers. And God knows. 
So can we trust him to handle it in the middle of this? When, when suffering comes, when, when Christians in China are suffering now, when Muslim converts um, are often shunned by their families and sometimes maimed or killed for their faith, um, when we like sheep are sent for the slaughter, um, when I'm grieved or lonely or, or hated, does God know? Does he see? Does he care? The, the, the tenderness with which he describes God's reaction to that is incredible to me. The problem is we want him to act on our terms. Lord, I want you to deal with this injustice now and probably in the way that I think it should be dealt with. Thank you very much. But James warns us about this. In James chapter 1, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We can be angry. We should be angry at injustice. Moses was not wrong for being angry that a Hebrew was being beaten by an Egyptian. He was not wrong for being angry that two Hebrews were uh, having a conflict and one was clearly in the wrong. He was not wrong for driving those shepherds off. But what we have to remember in the middle of this is our anger will not produce the righteousness of God. God's anger will. There's a time coming when his wrath will be poured out, when he will respond, when all of the injustice will be answered. It just takes a while. There's a day coming when it'll happen. Um, Paul in Philippians uh, chapter one has a prayer and he said, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. The day of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote that after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, what day do you think he's referring to in that instance? I think the only day of the Lord that he could be referring to is Jesus' return. And when Jesus returns, he brings judgment. He brings justice. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? Listen to what Paul said. He prays that our love may abound more and more. In the face of injustice, economic, gender, social, racial, in the face of all of this injustice, we're, our love is supposed to abound more and more. Not our, our ire and our wrath and our anger, but our love. And we are supposed to approve what is excellent. You know what? There is a lot of broken stuff in the world, but there's some stuff that's going on that's excellent, and that's what we're called to approve. And that we're supposed to be pure and blameless for the day of the Lord filled with the fruit of righteousness. So why is God letting the, the, the trouble continue on? Why is he waiting 40 more years to get Israel out of Egypt? Why is he waiting however many more years to get us out of this muck? I don't know. I don't know why it's that long, but I do know one thing. The Bible's pretty clear in what we're supposed to be doing in the meantime. Abounding in love, approving what is excellent, being found spotless, and blameless. That's his goal for us. That's where, that's where we should wind up when we get to the day of uh, Jesus Christ, when his return comes. And at that point, then we'll see the injustice dealt with. Check your wrath at the door. One of the popular phrases now is check your privilege, uh, check your wrath. 
before you check your privilege, check your wrath. Because the wrath of man is, is inconsistent. It is overboard in some places and weak in other places. Leave room for vengeance because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So that's where we're going to go when we move into the Exodus. Chapter 3, that's where we're going to be. Is God has now shown up in force. And where he now begins in chapter 3 and through the rest of the book is God in action. And it's that story of God and his people and the relationship between God and his people. How does God lead? How does God love? How does God provide for us? Well, first of all, he's going to redeem us. Then he's going to rule over us. And then he's going to dwell with us always. So that's where we're going to go. Prologue is over. Chapter 3. Now we begin the book of Exodus. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray earnestly from my heart, and I pray against the the numerous injustices in the world. Um, There is injustice all around us, and Lord, we, we recognize, we confess that what injustice is, is a world that is not in line with who you are. It is not a world not doing what you have designed it to do. Lord, your law is clear. The, the greatest commandment is to Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And Lord, anything that is out of conformity to that results in injustice, results in, in a broken and a fallen world. And so, Lord, we look forward to your reign and to your rule. Lord Jesus, come and rule over us. Dwell with us forever. And thank you for redeeming us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.